All right, you guys are the early and smaller service, so you guys have to have more energy this morning. I know we're the, this is actually the more live-streamed service of all of them, and so clearly we're very popular with the live-stream your church and your underwear crew, so that's good. <laughs> As Nancy said, we're, on, we're in Daniel chapter 1, so if you would turn there, uh, you can follow along with me. If you borrow a Bible from uh, the seat in front of you, she sits on page 737, so very good. That'll help you get there. Uh, longer section today, and so I'm going to take a little bit longer bringing this intro and, and, and opening this book up, but because of that, I want to dive right in. When critiquing the church in America as it related to uh, a few things, but really, the, the thing, the symptom that showed us that the church was less than healthy, and again, the church in America less than healthy, was its response or its position during COVID, right? That when COVID happened, the church could, had a moment, had, we talked about this last week, it had this opportunity to be different than the rest of the world, and long story short, they weren't. We weren't, Right? Now, we may have done well during COVID, and and we may not have struggled as much as a church as other churches did, Uh, but the church in America has a a level of health to it that isn't much different than us, right? And we were positioned well for it, but but we still show some of that same, I don't know what the word is, unhealth, dishealth, lack of health, whatever that might be. And so we've talked about that a bit. Let me give you an example. The American church nearly came to a complete stop after moving online, after that first three weeks passed of COVID. As April began, 2020, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, those first two Sundays in, in, in April, the church came to a grinding halt without being in buildings. Here's what happened. Giving tanked in the American church. We, you, you all were generous and carried us through. One in three churches closed, they said, or had did permanent, kind of did permanent things, right? Other churches declined so much they laid staff off. We were fortunate. You were generous. The church in America almost just, I mean, came to a grinding halt because in the absence of a building, giving stopped. In the absence of people showing up, people stopped giving. So either you have a conviction about giving or you don't. That's a conversation for another day. We're not talking about giving today. But as a symptom of how the church missed its moment, we can look at that one metric, attendance tanked, involvement tanked, and involvement was really hard. It was hard to figure out how to be involved, right? Giving about crippled the church. So here's a main idea. We start with a main idea. You'll see this slide twice today. Uh, Being Christ in a Christless culture. American Christianity must learn how to exist in a culture that is anti-Jesus. Our current model only works in friendly territory with benefits and no persecution. Now, COVID isn't persecution. COVID is something we all endured, right? It wasn't aimed at the church. It wasn't persecution. But our current model of church only works in friendly territory. It doesn't work under persecution. If we couldn't meet in a building because of our circumstances, it would forever reshape the church. We, our current model only works in a setting where 
We are not for profit. In other words, we don't have to pay property taxes, which are uh, $50,000 to $100,000 a year on this building. We don't have to pay. Imagine adding that to our budget. Imagine that if people's giving wasn't tax deductible, imagine what that would do to giving in the church. Many give for that write-off, right? We see some of these symptoms when the church shuts down or isn't in person. We never shut down, but we did go online. We're still with half our church today will be online. But the symptoms reveal themselves. So how do we learn how to be Christ in a, in a culture that is opposing Christ, right? And I think for us, the church, I think here's what we need to hear. We are a lot closer to the circumstances in Daniel than we are the circumstances in First and Second Samuel, where we just were, or Ecclesiastes, where Solomon, a believer, is the king leading the nation. We are much further away from that than we would like to admit. We are much closer to the circumstances in Daniel. You can like that, dislike that, agree or disagree, but I tell you it's true. That we are closer. We should see this differently. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed vessels in the treasury of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. He is the empire right now that is the most profound empire here, right? And they go in, and it says this. God delivered Judah, God's people, the Jews, the Israelites, right? The last holdout was Judah. Israel's already wiped out. They were wiped out by the Assyrians, right? Most of Judah has been conquered all the way down to Jerusalem, to their capital city. The people that exist that are still in their own land are in Jerusalem at this point, basically. There's a few more, but not much. Remember in Isaiah, when we were going through the prophet Isaiah, and the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Syrians, all these people are coming in, and they're conquering, and there's this one godly king, and a long line of kings, there's this one faithful godly king, and God honors that, and they don't capture Jerusalem. They get to the edges of it, they taunt them, but God protects them. Fast forward now to a couple kings later, the son or grandson of that king, and here we are, and God lifts his hand off of him, but he doesn't just allow something to happen, he actually causes it to happen. It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. We need to hear that. When the people of God are not obedient to God, what, what will first happen, like all the prophets, God will call them back. Maybe we need to hear that today as kind of a prophetic calling back to who God would have us to be. But when that happens, and the people of God just kind of cover their ears and don't, don't listen, right? The Bible uses things like hard-hearted and stiff-necked. When they just kind of reject God, keep God away, and do what they want to do. And the American church is guilty of being how we want to be, not how God calls us to be. When that happens over a protracted time of God calling people to repentance... He will often lift his hand off them. That's how all, those, the, all the cities and, and all of Israel and, and most of Judah were conquered. And if they still don't listen, they still need the message, he will actually cause this. So here's a note for you. God disciplines those whom he loves. Disciplining children, we'll put this on the screen, is about loving them enough to teach them what is right. 
God disciplines and corrects us, his children, right? Because he loves us. Read Hebrews 12, 6. Those whom God loves, he disciplines, right? Never hear just punitive, just like, if you're a good parent, just like you don't just punish to punish, right? Maybe that might be what you want to do in the moment. You discipline to train. God is disciplining his, his people. Again, I want you to know we're closer to this than we are First and Second Samuel, right? We're closer to this. We're closer to the discipline of God or, the, the not, or maybe even, and, and I would suggest, and we can debate this later, I would suggest God's already lifted his hand off the church. Not completely, we're still here. And not the church globally, that'll never go away until Jesus returns. But the American church is pretty weak and impotent. Maybe that's telling us something. Does that mean we've been wiped out and judged and exiled? No. But pretty weak and impotent might just suggest God's lifting or has lifted his hand. We should hear that as a warning, right? God disciplines those whom he loves. Will we hear the discipline? Will we learn the lessons? Or will we just kind of keep going, la, 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 right? Will we be all stiff-necked and just turn from God? We'll be hard-hearted, and the words of God will never penetrate the lives that we live. Verse 3, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, there's a job none of you men want, to bring some, and Janet, you didn't have to read about it, that's good. So, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, a good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, to be competent to stand on the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were the people grew up before Babylon rose. Babylon is the empire, right? Kind of like the difference between the United States and Americans, things like it's a different term, same group of people. What I want you to hear is this is full-on indoctrination. They are being exiled. They're being taken out of their home. They're choosing the best and the brightest. They're like, nope, 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 that one. I want that one. Nope, 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 that one. That one looks right. Come on, bring that one, right? They're choosing the best and the brightest. They're bringing them in, and the process is a three-year indoctrination. They will teach them everything about Chaldean or Babylonian language, literature, religion. They will, they will indoctrinate. So just, I want you to hear this. Here we are. It's August, right? At Valley, we go back to school. School starts again for brand new students tomorrow, Tuesday for everybody, right? Public schools and other schools are starting to work their way back towards school. And all the topic in the news is what schools will be teaching. Critical race theory or this or that or whatever, right? And then what you hear is people kind of in uproar about what will be taught in the schools. Here's what I want you to hear. These young men are taken in and they will be full-on indoctrinated for three years in a culture that is antithetical to how God would have them live. And that's the setting for the chapter one today. How do we live in that setting? How do we live in a setting where we're being indoctrinated? And, and make no mistake, we are. Culture is indoctrinating, right? The media, art, right? You can't watch a TV show without seeing a political agenda built into it, right? And you can't, you can't do it because culture, the main voices in culture, music, art, media, right? All those things are speaking loudly and they're only speaking in one direction. That is indoctrination. Education fits that camp. 
It all fits one side. How do we live in that? Do we argue and fight and shout? Or how do we live? How do they live? Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Right? Daniel gets a new name, Belteshazzar. He is named after the Chaldean or Babylonian god Bel. Right? We'll see a new king. It'll be the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, whose name is Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar's Daniel. Belshazzar is the, is the grandson, right? Bel. There's also Nebo, right? And so you see these names, right? Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Nebo. All these different things come from God. So here's what I want you to hear. Christian kids, right? Your child is taken, brought into a place where you're going to be indoctrinated for three years and named something like Muhammad, which is incredibly tied to a different faith system. Named after other religions. That's what happens to them here. And then... How does the indoctrination process work? Well, everything they need is given to them, right? They don't work for anything. Everything is provided for them, right? And then they are renamed. Their identity is stripped. They're given a new identity. And then they will be told exactly what to believe. That will be the process. Again, push pause. How would we fare? How would our kids fare? If that's what happened, if they were taken and put in that setting, how would it go, right? So what's the antidote? So if that's true, and if we answer the question honestly, most of the kids taken into that setting would be indoctrinated. They would make that shift into this belief system, right? That's why we see as things trend younger, as younger people come, we watch as, as, the, as the, the scope of what kind of the consensus in the nation is, we, it shifts this way, right? It follows the process. So what is the antidote to that? Vote in a new president? Choose a new team? No. We've been trying to do that for 250 years, right? The answer is to a spiritual problem is never a human solution. We never vote in your solution. Uh, just side note, because that side's all screwed up too, no matter which one we're talking about. So here's a note for you. An antidote to the indoctrination. Americans try to fix by voting. In Scripture, families overcome a cultural indoctrination by parents teaching their children what God says in Scripture. Next service, where we'll have triple the people and all the families, basically. That's important, right? For those of you that are family age, or your kids are grown, or you're becoming a grandparent, don't miss the message, right? This is the place where the older generations that are here today, that are, that are in our world today, missed. This didn't all get passed on. Right? And then now with grandkids, how do, we, how do we clean this up? Well, we don't, we don't vote in the solution. We'll never fix it. That We will never solve a spiritual problem with the human answer. It's train your child up in the ways of the Lord, and when he has grown older, it will not depart from it. It doesn't say they won't leave it. The truth will be there. They may go wherever they go. Right? I'm living proof. The truth will remain. The answer is parents. Not schools, not churches parents. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food 
or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So there's different opinions on why Daniel abstains from the meat and the wine, right? It could be that the meat was pork. That doesn't quite explain the wine. It could be that it was a non-kosher diet. He's like, well, we don't eat that, right? could be that, but that doesn't explain the wine. It could be that these things, wine and meat, when this is possible, that, that they were offered or used in idol worship, in, in false worship, right? That could be, it's probably not, right? It could be a whole host of things. It is likely, whatever it is, that they were looking to not be dependent upon the king, that they were trying to live apart from and not be dependent upon because that shapes things. Now, no matter what the answer is, no matter why, how they respond is more important than why they abstain. So they don't go out and protest, they don't go out and, and i try and keep this clean, gripe and complain. Here's what they do, they quietly, privately, and politely abstain. They have favor with this leader this kind of political position that, is, that exists here, that is the chief of the eunuchs, they go politely, they go quietly, they go privately, and they say, hey, listen, we need to abstain from that. We can't do that. No matter what the reason they did it, how they do it is incredibly insightful. Back up to a mask mandate, back up to no in-person church, back up to no singing in church last June, back, June a year ago. Back up to any of those decisions and was the church loud and boisterous and obnoxious? Yeah, on both sides. There wasn't a whole lot of quietly, privately, politely doing something. People would rather wear t-shirts with slogans that are offensive to others than they would learn how to do the right thing the right way. People would rather post on social media something that is antagonistic and loud rather than quietly figure out how do we live in this context in a way that still glorifies God and is, it is, and is consistent with our faith. Verse 9, the, and God gave favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So God gives them favor not only for their decisions. See, that's where we lose track today. Well, if I make the right decision, if I do the right thing, but no, it's how they do it. They gain favor because of how they abstain, not just that they abstain. That's why we're not told why they abstain, because that part's not important. Oh, look, they chose not to eat pork. Oh, look, they didn't involve themselves in this. Or, oh, look, this. That's why we're not told. We're told how they abstain, because it's probably more important. Verse 10, and the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king. In other words, hey, I hear you, but I answer to Nebuchadnezzar, right? I fear my Lord, the king who has assigned your food and drink, for why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths that are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of these youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. I've heard this verse used for all kinds of ideas. Here's what they do. They just go to the most minimum thing that they can do. It's vegetables and water. There's no assertion that you should be a vegan. There's no idea that there's anything else going on other than 
Here's what we can do. We can live off the ground, something God provides. We'll do that. Here's the minimum thing we can commit to. Will you just test us for 10 days? Like, what could happen in 10 days? You can always pull the plug, right? But they have favor with this leader because of how they've approached this conversation. When we, when we lead into areas, when there's places that infringe on what we believe, do we do it in such a way that it's winsome? Do we do it in such a way where we win favor with people to see things differently than we do? This is a guy who has an entirely different faith system and is accountable to the emperor and could die if he does the wrong thing here, and yet they have favor with him because of how they approach this. Verse 15, it says, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in a better, better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that, and that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. The outcome is that God honors their choice. God honors their method. God honors their circumstances, and they are better. I've never met an overweight vegan. Now, maybe they exist, but for the most part, people seem to thin out, right? And they fatten up. They look better in a good way. They're stronger, better in every way, and it's visible. But what's important is not what they believe, it's how they live. In America today, we champion what we believe, and we don't care how we say it. We don't care how we post it. We don't care how we live it out. We think the ends justify the means. God would say the exact opposite. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So who gives them the ability to learn all these pagan, counter-Judaism, and modern-day context, like anti-Jesus stuff? Who gives them the ability to be very smart and pass all that? God does. God enables them to do this, right? It says he gave them the learning and the skill he said also he gives Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. That'll come up in chapter 2 as Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that haunts him. Daniel's been given this, not just because of who he is or what he believes, but how he lives. Verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief and the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So they're not alone, there are others. There are cultural Babylonians and Chaldeans and other conquered people. They're all being educated in the same thing, right? They're all done, they all go through this process. But Daniel is different. If you guys are fans of the VeggieTales series, right? Rack, Shack, and Benny, or the other three, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Rack, Shack, and Benny, and Daniel, they all are different. They abstain from things that somehow get into their conscience, but they do so in such a way that is winsome, and God blesses that and grants them that. God favors them, so much so at the end of all this, where they come and stand before the king, they're the best. It says 10 times better, right? These are the kids that go to public school and pass the gender studies and sexual orientation class and learn all the 27 different pronouns that now exist. They pass the test and the final exam on critical race theory. They live into this. They know all the right answers. That does not mean they believe them. 
They learn, they hear, but they're never compromised. They're not dragged into this side or this side, like the modern American church. They're so far buried into this pagan or anti-God culture. Just consider this. Their names now reflect other gods, other idols, other worship practices. Their learning is all contrary to scripture. Their diet has been limited. They live on less and achieve more. How long before this would the American church have just grenaded way back here without letting them go this far into culture? You know why that is? It's because we think we still live in First and Second Samuel. We think we still live in a nation that is defined by God and led by God. If that was ever true, it's not been true in a long time. Just because people who founded something believed in someone doesn't mean everyone else does. Because we're farther away from that than we'd like to admit, and we're nearer to the setting in Daniel than we would like to see. But because they know exactly who they are and where they are, they excel at what they do, and God blesses that. They pass all the tests. They do all the things. These are the A students. The A students. This is your, you know, your leading students, right? Your valedictorian, your salutatorian, all of them right here. Verse 21, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, this is a little note. It goes Nebuchadnezzar, and then there's going to be a son, two son-in-laws of Nebuchadnezzar, and then three grandsons. By the third grandson, we'll get to Belshazzar, which Daniel will include in his writing. But it goes through six, six other leaders to get there. And then after Belshazzar, there's a couple other things that happen. But eventually, we're going to hear about Darius the Mede and then Cyrus the Persian, who, by the way, 120 years earlier than that, Isaiah predicted by name because God told him what would happen. Good stuff, right? All this will take place, and here's what happens is Daniel is exiled in Babylon for longer than 70 years because the 70 years of exile prophecy, they get to that point, and Daniel seeks God in it in Daniel, and God's like, nope, nobody's listening still. That should scare us. So all these changes, but Daniel's still there. So we'll put this on the string, a long, influential life. Daniel lives over 70 years in exile. Though kings and kingdoms change, God remains the same. And Daniel is a faithful witness to God, for God, to powerful people. Daniel will be here for Nebuchadnezzar. He'll be around for Belshazzar. He'll be around for Darius the Mede. He'll be around for Cyrus the Persian. He will have a role throughout his life in this place that is not his own. He will be blessed and honored by God in captivity, never freed. Let that set in for a minute. For as long as some of our oldest people in the church, he will live in exile his whole life. God will use him in that setting, never delivering him out of that setting. Cyrus will come in and begin to release the people. We will pick that story up right there with Ezra and Nehemiah when we finish Daniel. We'll watch the returning exiles repopulate Jerusalem, Judah, Israel. Chapter 2, I'm going to go large chunks now, so I hope you guys had your coffee. I know this is first service, bear with me. 
Verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word is from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. If you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, let me dream, let, show me, therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying, to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can tell me its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that haunts him. And he calls his regular people to help him. And he feels in this place, at this time, the people have been misleading him. So here's his challenge. Either you tell me what I dreamed and what it means, or I'm going to kill you and your entire family. Nebuchadnezzar goes all mob boss right here. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to burn your houses down. I'm going to let everybody, everybody out. But you tell me the dream and its interpretation, I will flood you with stuff. I will give you gifts, give you power. You can't just interpret it for me because I don't trust you anymore. You've got to tell me the dream and its interpretation. Verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They say it's impossible. You can't do that, Right? So they bring in all the mediums and the astrologers and the tarot card readers, and they bring all the mediums, and they bring everybody in. If you've ever experienced any of that, they ask you a lot of questions. And Nebuchadnezzar says, listen, you really got this thing going on? I shouldn't, you, I, you shouldn't have to ask me any questions. Just tell me the answer. Yeah, they're like, no, it doesn't work that way. He says, well, it's going to work that way this time. Or mob boss, me, your whole family, right? That's how it's going to be. Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel's companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men and of Babylon. So the king's had it. He sends out to kill them all, and Daniel hears about this because Daniel's going to be a part of them all even though he's not even, he doesn't even know what's going on. So he asks, and again, Note the language used about Daniel. Notice how when he asks a question, people respond to him well, right? Notice the place he has in the culture. Now, this isn't after he passed all the tests. That's three years into his exile. This is a year or two prior to that where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and Daniel is an unknown to him. 
but the captain of the guard, the chief of the, you know, all the other people that have been working with him know him and treat him well. Why? Not because of his stance against them, because of his approach to them. And so when he asks a question, they treat him well, and they give him an opportunity. So he requests a time to see the king and says, listen, I'll give the king his answer. Can you get me in front of the king? He is not only going to save his own life here and the life of his buddies, but all the wise men in Babylon will be saved through Daniel's decision. And this is a zero-sum game. You walk in, and you either walk out dead or, or rich. There's no, like, you leave there unscathed. They're, you're one or the other. And he puts everything on the line. He risks everything. But look at what he does. He goes over to his buddy's houses, and he and the homies get together and pray. Right? They're like, okay, well, this is serious. Like, we, we need to know, God, what is this? God, would you reveal this to us? Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Daniel will now worship God for answering his prayers. He says, to whom belong wisdom and might? He changes times and seasons, meaning God, he removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He, again, still meaning God, knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you, giving me wisdom and might. And now have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. He worships God for giving him the answer he needs. I want to put this on the screen for you, the inward life. The strength of a believer is not shaped in moments of testing by lions or fire. We'll see that, right, coming up in the story. If you know the story, Daniel will be thrown to the lions. Rackshack and Benny, they're going to get thrown in the fire, right? Those guys, it's not shaped. Character is not shaped in those moments. The inward strength of a believer isn't shaped in moments of testing by lions or fire, but rather in the quiet moments seeking God alone and with others, right? In those quiet moments, of when you've stepped up and said, hey, I'm it, I'll go do this, and then you gather together with the buddies and you pray and you seek God, character is built there, strength is built there. The inward life builds the Christian, not just the trial. That's the difference in what do we believe and how do we live. Daniel lives this way because this is the way he lives, because he prays, because he gathers with others, because he commits to this life of faith, so that when there's a trial, he is strong. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring in me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and thus said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, remember he's been renamed, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Nebuchadnezzar looks at Daniel and says, so you can interpret dreams. And Daniel says, nope, not me. But God can. And God wants to speak to you. And so he's included me in this 
to tell you the dream you had alone at night and have told no one. And what it means, God wants to tell you what is going to happen in the future. So God reveals himself all throughout Scripture in one way that doesn't exist in any other faith system. It's prophecy. God will tell what is going to happen next and then allow the life of the people to see it play out so that they will know he is God. We talked about this a lot in Isaiah. As Isaiah would call to the people of God, remember, the people of God were being disobedient. He's calling them to repent. He says, why do you worship these, these idols made of wood and gold? Like, call out to your idols right now. Those ones that have ears, ask if they hear. Those ones that have mouths, tell them to talk. Tell them to tell the future. And then Isaiah says this, I tell you what, how about you tell them to tell you the past? They can't even tell you, the, they can't talk. They're made of wood, they're made of gold. And he tells the people, why would you do this? Why do you pursue things that can't ever answer the needs that you have? God alone can do that. So Daniel says this to Nebuchadnezzar, I can't help you, but God can. God wants to reveal the future to you so that you know he is God. Verse 31, you saw a king and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Daniel's telling him what he dreamed. The head of its image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, partly, his feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you've looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff in the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation. You imagine that moment? You show up, like the closest thing we have as a president, you just imagine someone with all that, you just show up and you're like, here's your dream. God said this is what he said. And it's about you. Oh, it's not good but it's about you, right? So you're going to die. That's what he's going to tell him, right? I mean, like, that's the deal. Can you imagine? See, the strength of Daniel isn't built in these moments. It was built back in prayer with his buddies. It was built in a life of obedience. The reason he can stand up under these moments is because he's been building towards this. Verse 37, you, O king, king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the glory. By the way, note that he recognizes a pagan, anti-God king was put in place by God. So no matter who you voted for, God still put him in place, right? Same thing applies. Verse 38, into those whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another, so he's beginning to interpret, you're the head of gold on top. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze. So the silver, another kingdom. Bronze, another kingdom, which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. Flawed. That kingdom will be flawed, but it will reign for a minute, right? And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be the divided kingdom. This is the, uh, the Middle Persian Empire he's talking about. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle, flawed as it will be. 
As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand that broke that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and gold. What God has made known to the king, what shall be after this? The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. He tells him about the demise of his kingdom all the way through the Middle Persian Empire, Greece, and potentially up to Rome. Tells him, here's what's going to happen, right? But in the midst of this, the stone that you saw cut away that smashes all these things is a kingdom that God will raise up. He comes in and he begins to kind of present an Old Testament gospel version to Nebuchadnezzar, kind of looking forward to the day when Christ enters into humanity to come in and put on flesh and to build a kingdom of which we are to be a part of today, that Jesus will live and live the life that we are all called to live, modeling it for us and being our sinless savior and then die for us, give his life as a substitute for us that we might be forgiven, that we might be transformed. He will be laid in a grave, resurrected from that grave, that we would be transformed. He will then ascend back to heaven and fill us with his spirit, creating the kingdom, right? Jesus is the inauguration of the kingdom. Jesus' first words, as he goes into vocational ministry, his first preached words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prepare, the kingdom is here. We are to live in that kingdom, even though we live in this world. We mess that all up and think we're in this kingdom, this kingdom we live in, and that that's our future, and that these two can be the same thing. Daniel's telling them all these kingdoms will end. What will never end is the kingdom of God. So here's a note for you we'll put on the screen. Daniel proclaims Christ. Daniel's prophecy proclaims Christ both to people in power and people enslaved as a reminder of God's eternal plan in the midst of a temporary life. His gospel message is to the emperor and the exile, to people in power and people oppressed, that Jesus will come and create a kingdom with no end, reminding us everything here is temporary. Let's wrap this up. Verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him rule over the whole province of Babylon, then chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Daniel doesn't forget where he comes from. Rakshak and Benny, they get jobs too. They're elevated to this place of prominence as Jews who are exiled into Babylon. The way they live is in such a way that they find favor with others. Without ever compromising their faith, they pass all the tests, they do all the things, and they are honored. Then, then and only then, God uses them in a very anti-God setting to make him known. How that applies to us today is what we will look at in this book. We will look at how does this apply? How do we become those people who look like Jesus in this world? So here was our main idea today. 
We're just going to repeat it. It's the same one from earlier. Being Christ in a Christless culture. American Christianity must learn how to exist in a culture that is anti-Jesus. Our current model only works in friendly territory with benefits and no persecution. Here's our problem. Our model is broken. It only works when everybody's on the same page and everybody's for it. And that'll never remain. Our current model of church and Christianity is failing because we broke it. Not because Jesus did anything wrong. Jesus didn't create a model that agreed with the government. Jesus didn't create a model where buildings and properties were tax-exempt. He didn't do that. He created a people group that would go against culture, that would live in ways that were antithetical to the culture they were in. In fact, so much so that not only would Jesus die for his faith, but all his disciples and apostles would die for their faith. All his apostles will go on to be executed, or at least John will be attempted to be executed, and he'll live through it, which freaks out Caesar, and they exile him. We should live so anti-culture that we don't think that the culture is what we need. We think that we are what culture needs. I remember having a conversation not too long ago, right out here, just lamenting the past that prayer isn't allowed in schools and, and things like that. God help us if one of the teachers in a public school were to lead our kids in prayer today. But that's not our answer. Our answer isn't the institution. Our answer is us. So how do we learn how to live in a culture that is opposing us? Well, here's two more slides for you. Recognizing our sin. American Christianity hands the training of our children over to schools and sometimes to churches. A parent's primary role is training their children in their faith. If you don't have kids, this is still for you. Your primary role is to grow in your faith. You should be able to answer the questions. You should be grounded in your faith. If you were to be taken up out of your family and moved over to a place and indoctrinated for three years, you should be able to survive and thrive and be a witness for Jesus in that culture. We have to repent of abdicating our role. It is not my job or Miss Brooks' job to teach your kids. It's not Alex's job to train your teenagers and your students. It is your job, and we want to partner with you. Christian schools are amazing things. They should partner with you, not take your job from you. And if your kids go to public school, they should be grounded in their faith when they walk through the doors. Last slide, repenting of sin. Your actions speak louder than your words. Attending church on Sundays is not living a life of faith. Faith is built in community like Daniel and his friends. This isn't church, your church. This is a worship service. This is a pleasure and a benefit we have together. You're the church. I'm the church. We are the church. And we don't get to just check a box one day a week. Our faith is lived out 24-7 throughout the week, engaging with one another. Has nothing to do with this building, has nothing to do with generation, has nothing to do with a name. We are the church. And until we get out of that, that idea that the Sunday service or the building is the church, if we, until we get out of the idea that me or Pastor Paul or whatever are in charge of the development of you or your children, we're going to be the people that we currently are. We're going to be broken and flawed, and God help us if they take our kids and put them in another setting because they're not ready for the most part. How can we live in this world? We need to own our own faith. We need to up our game, and we need to prioritize the faith in our children over their futures, their colleges, their sports, their academics, their everything. Like we need, you can have all those other things, but we have to prioritize faith.
because that's what we're missing. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. You entered into this world, a world that was so opposing you that you were murdered. And that the people you came to, the Jewish people, were so far from their faith, so far from what Scripture taught, that they handed you over. That the Roman world was so willing to crucify someone who had done no, no wrong just to keep political power and peace. That's the birth of the church. That's the setting for the birth of the church. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are a foreshadowing of the life of the church. We get to learn from them just like we see our own lives now. Help us, Lord, to stop abdicating our role to everybody else. Help us to train our children and our grandchildren. Help us to take seriously the development of our own faith. Let us take our faith as primary that we might pass it on. May we be the people who make stands when we have to make stands, but do so in such a way that the world around us is invited into our story and our journey. Let us learn how to take our beliefs and how to live them out in such a way that others want to know more about us rather than reject us and not want anything to do with us. Jesus, help us to look like you more than we look like the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.